test. Okay. Open your Bibles to John 18 this morning. There's one in the pew in front of you, underneath there, if you don't have your Bible. Simmons, is, you're sitting in a different place. You're really throwing me off this morning. It's switch sides on me. I just kind of did the scan, you know, and I'm like, oh, you're over there. All right, John chapter 18. We're going to read through uh, verse 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a, hand, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word which he had spoken of these whom you gave me. I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The man Jesus Christ of Nazareth lived the greatest life ever lived. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are given to us to reveal everything that God intended for us to know about that life. And our information is really tantalizingly brief, especially in light of uh, the Apostle John's statement, the last verse of the gospel. Now there also are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's not to say that we should feel under-informed, like we're missing out on something. I think we can be sure that we have exactly what God intended us to have. And I, I do think that we can look forward to eternity hearing those other stories uh, about the acts of Jesus during his incarnation. But we are actually coming to the end of the Gospel of John. And in some ways, the best is yet to come. If things go according to plan, we'll finish the Gospel of John uh, end of May, early June. And if things really go according to plan, we'll hit the resurrection at Easter time. That's my hope. So we've taken these months since September to consider Jesus' words in chapters 13 through 17, these last words to his disciples and those who would believe through their testimony. That's us. Jesus is very aware of the cross, the crisis that's about to come in the lives of these 11 men. They have no idea how their world is about to be shattered. And then Jesus gives them these final instructions, and he prays for them, and then he proceeds trusting the Father. I would like to just remind you of Jesus' words at the beginning of his prayer in John 17 that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So the hour of Christ's glory is the cross, and beginning in John chapter 18, we are now going to consider these words from the Apostle John as Jesus moves deliberately 
towards that cross. And so, as we look at chapter 18 this morning, we're going to consider the glory of cross, the glory of Christ in the garden. The glory of Christ in the garden. I'd like to remind you, so it's been a while since we did any kind of introduction to the book of John, years, uh, months. I'd like to remind you that John was written much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. They have many accounts that are the same. They cover many of the same stories. And John provides us with different accounts. And I think that fact should lead us to understand two things. John, writing much later, is filling in the gaps. But also, I think it's clear that John expects us to bring with us the things that we learn from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is assuming that we've read the other three Gospels. And so why that's important to us this morning is because John does not spend very much time in the garden at all. Like, that's it. Beginning in verse 12, Jesus is on trial before Annas, the high priest. So let me just take a minute as we come now into this narrative section in John 18 to remind you the things that we know about the garden from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because I think they're important for some of the things here in John. First of all, the Garden of Gethsemane was a familiar place for Jesus and his disciples. The Garden of Gethsemane was a familiar place for them. Let me read to you Luke chapter 21, verse 37. At the beginning of the week, it says, And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And then on the night of his betrayal, Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And then Matthew 26, 36, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So the Garden of Gethsemane sits at the base of the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane, by the way, means press. Olive press is the idea. So the garden, it's, it's filled with olive trees, and there was certainly some place in the garden where there was a press. The cities were tightly crowded. If you lived in Jerusalem, uh, it was just like living in a big city today. There weren't a lot of gardens. Uh, wealthy Jews from Jerusalem would have had gardens. They would have owned plots of land out on the outskirts of the city, outside of the city, where they could maintain these gardens. And we know that Jesus was supported by wealthy followers, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, uh, whoever owned the, the upper room where they had the Last Supper. So perhaps one of these two families, or some other wealthy family, owned this garden and had allowed Jesus and his disciples to use it as a place to sleep during the week, and and probably on other visits to Jerusalem as well. So this is kind of important, because on the night of the Passover, the Last Supper, the disciples would have expected to have sort of drank and ate and had fellowship and fun, and at some point to just sort of lay back and go to sleep, all right? They thought they would have rented the room or received the room for the evening, but Jesus had other plans. And so, just as we saw in in John chapter 14, at some point he says, arise, let us go from here. So they leave the upper room and they head for the Garden of Gethsemane. 
The second thing that I would like to remind you uh, that we learn from other sources is that at first, Judas would not have expected for Jesus to be at the garden. Judas thought that Jesus was going to still be in the upper room. So Judas left early in the evening. Satan, having entered into Judas, directs him to go and betray Jesus, and he was no doubt planning on bringing those soldiers back to the upper room. The religious leaders wanted to get Jesus in secret, so they didn't want to cause a riot. That was their concern, so they needed Judas, and there's good reason to believe that Judas did, in fact, go there first, and he quickly realized his error, and then he proceeded, well, the only other place they could be is going to be the garden. So in Acts chapter 12, John Mark, so Mark is actually the writer of the Gospel of Mark, is mentioned as the son of the woman who owned the upper room where the Christians met. And, and many believe that that is the same upper room. So this, this upper room that was owned by Mark's mother is the same upper room where they gathered to partake of the Last Supper. And there's this curious little verse that you've probably noticed before in Mark. So as Jesus is being arrested and the disciples are fleeing, we read this. This is Mark 14, 51 and 52. A young man followed them with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, you've probably been reading your Bible before, and you're like, well, that's a strange verse, all right? But we're just going to keep going, all right? So it seems that perhaps the author of the Gospel of Mark, Mark, John Mark, is inserting himself here in the account. So here's a a possible explanation for what may have gone down. Jesus and his disciples depart for the garden well ahead of Judas and the soldiers who are going to the upper room. Mark is at the time a youth, perhaps a, a teenager, and he hears all the commotion going on downstairs and he gets up and puts on some kind of one piece garment, wraps something around himself, and he follows from a distance these soldiers as they're going to get Jesus in the garden. And he's trying to watch, but once the disciples start to flee and perhaps things become a little chaotic, he is found, and the soldiers try to grab him, and he releases his garment, and he runs away without his garment in the process. The point is this. Jesus knowing that Judas is coming, and I would say intending to buy a little more time to be with his disciples and to pray, Jesus gets up and goes to the garden. And so Judas will make a stop there on the way. So third, and most important, that I want you to understand before we get to John 18, you can't understand Golgotha without Gethsemane. Gethsemane, the garden of Gethsemane, is what helps us to understand the excruciating use that word intentionally, agony that Jesus was experiencing as he proceeded to the cross. When Jesus arrives in the garden, he is very upset, and he gets his disciples settled so that he can get alone and pray. So let me read to you. This is Matthew 26, 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Pray for me. My soul is very sorrowful. That's what Jesus says to Peter uh, and James and John. 
Jesus is in such anguish about what he is about to go through. And so he goes and he prays, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And we'll trace this out in John 18 in just a minute. But it is very important that you understand that Jesus is not a victim in this scene. Jesus is moving towards the cross in full knowledge of what awaits him. And as I often say at our Good Friday services here, I am convinced that though the physical suffering was to be dreaded in every way, that it was certainly even more terrifying to Jesus, that prospect of being forsaken by his Father. So Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who from eternity past has enjoyed a perfect communion with his Father, is going to know what it means to be separated from him. And separation from God, we've talked about this, is what it means to die. That's what hell is, to be separated from God. And that is what Jesus endured on your behalf. Luke 22 says, There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Jesus is so upset that the Father sends an angel to comfort him, but even after receiving that refreshment from the angel, even after that, Jesus is said to sweat drops of blood. And there's a real medical condition. Your, Your heart is, I guess, beating so fast. You're so troubled that the blood squeezes through the little capillaries in your sweat glands, and you can actually begin to sweat drops of blood. It's extreme anguish. It's real. So once again, the garden helps us to understand what Christ endured as he makes his way to the cross. And so we read in Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. Later on, the writers of Hebrews said, I've mentioned this verse recently, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The path to glory for Jesus was the cross. He prayed that in John chapter 17. We saw this last week. Glorify the Son. And he knows that that glory is going to come only through the cross. And so he goes there, not ignorant, but willingly. He was not a victim. And he set himself, according to the writer of Hebrews, he set himself to seek the glory that would come to him through the cross. And so with that context in mind, I want us to turn then to John chapter 18. And if you have your Bible, you can open it. And I want us to look at four ways that we see the glory of Christ in the garden here in John chapter 18. The first way that we see the glory of Christ is the glory of Christ in his resolve. The glory of Christ in his resolve. Verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, 
also knew the place, for Jesus met often there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? So notice the resolve of Jesus in these verses. Who seems like they are in control of the situation in these three verses? Jesus went out into the garden. Jesus, knowing what was going to happen to him, Jesus comes forward and says, whom do you seek? You know, you picture the scene, like you picture that other, other things you may have seen on television or read in books where, you know, his disciples, you know, they try to put someone forward to say, no, this is really our leader. But, you know, Jesus, if, if that was even the case, Jesus will have none of it. Who are you looking for? Who, who is it that you want to see? And Matthew says that Judas brought a great multitude with him. This is not just a couple of soldiers. This is not just a handful of guards. This is a lot of soldiers coming with torches and weapons. They think they're coming for a fight. And there's also some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So you got the soldiers who are coming for a fight, and you got the officers who are coming to make sure this job gets done. And I saw a couple of different commentators mention that the torches are an interesting addition because the Passover is always held at the full moon. So it's bright. There's plenty of light, but they were expecting that this was going to be a manhunt and that they would have to chase Jesus through the hills. According to Matthew 27, 55, Jesus calls out how ridiculous this is. He says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, but you did not seize me. They're cowards. The, the chief priests and the Pharisees are cowards. They don't want to start a riot. They're afraid that the people will be upset, and so they're doing this at night. But not only does Jesus not run, he takes the initiative. He moves towards them. Knowing what would happen, he came forward and asked, whom do you see? Over and over again, over and over again, the Gospels tell us that Jesus eludes the crowds. There's that scene in, in Luke 4 where he's, they're about to throw him off the mountain in Nazareth. And it says that he just sort of drifts through them. And over and over again it says, For his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Well, now his hour has come. And Jesus knows full well what's at stake. And he's all in. He is moving forward. It's interesting to me that Jesus came forward. It was Judas' job to identify Jesus. That's the only reason he's there now. Because even though he was a wanted man... They didn't have, like, signs in the post office. You know, here's a picture of Jesus. Here's what he looks like. They didn't have that. So somebody had to identify which one was Jesus. And the Roman soldiers, they didn't care. So Judas' whole purpose for being there is to be the one who will say, it's this guy. There's 11 guys, 12 guys. It's that one. And in some ways, I was thinking about it this week. That makes Judas' kiss all the more deadly and satanic. His work is done. He's betrayed the Lord. Jesus has identified himself. But Judas insists on going through with the sign, the sign of affection, the kiss of a friend. And Jesus calls him out. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So G Judas had work to do in this, and the Pharisees had work to do, and Pilate had work to do, and the Roman soldiers had work to do, and they were all accountable for crucifying the Lord Jesus. But Jesus went deliberately every step of the way. He truly laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. So we see the glory of Christ 
in his resolve. Secondly, we see the glory of Christ in his words. Verses 4 through 7. Then Jesus... Take a moment for a refreshment. All right, back to verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. John is the only one who records this part of the arrest. Jesus identifies him. He says, Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And when he said that, all of those who were arresting him fell to the ground. Now, I think there's an obvious connection here to Jesus' words, I am he, or I am. I am. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? I am. And the name of Yahweh given to Moses at the burning bush. I am. And some dispute it because they say, why would this matter to a bunch of Roman soldiers? What, what difference does it make? It's hard to believe that given the response, there's no significance to what Jesus says here. Jesus says, I am, and they all fall down. And I think this is the first of two miracles that Jesus performs here in the garden. This was the miracle that was performed on purpose to show that Jesus was not helpless before his enemies. He could easily have prevented his arrest. If you can speak a word and have everybody fall backwards, you, you will only be arrested if you allow yourself to be arrested. He didn't need the swords. He didn't need the torches. He didn't need the lanterns to fight back. He could have defeated this multitude of soldiers and officers with a word of his mouth because the words of Christ are powerful. He can do impossible things with just a word. He can create with a word. With the word, he transforms a human heart. He can make a whole, whole cohort of Roman soldiers fall down in a heap with a word. And one day, with a word, he will destroy. Speaking of Christ against the Antichrist, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And then in Revelation 19, speaking of his second coming, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. We sang earlier in the song, A Mighty Fortress, we said, one little word, speaking of Satan, one little word shall fell him. Jesus can say, drop dead, and the battle is over. The enemies of Christ have been and always will be overmatched. Jesus says at the end of John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. So Jesus was arrested in the garden only because he allowed himself to be arrested. Third, we see the glory of his Christ, of Christ in his perfect pro, ah, in his protection of his own. We see the glory of Christ in his protection of his own. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus answered him, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. I think these verses are probably meant to be taken in connection with the previous four. I believe that Jesus's obvious power gives him the standing to say, I will come with you, but you let these go. I, I'm, it's just me that you want. And even as he is being arrested, he is actively protecting them. 
So John adds this little comment here. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. And I think that's the thing that he said. We saw this last week in chapter 17, verse 12. He says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Of those whom the Father has given him, Jesus lost not one. And I don't understand this to mean physically. I don't think that it means that he didn't let any of them get hurt, just like we talked about last week. I think he is saying, I didn't let any of them come to harm spiritually. I did not let the enemy harm them. I protected them and their souls from losing faith. Jesus knew that it would be too much for these 11 to be arrested that night. It would be too much for them to handle. It would break not only their souls for having lost their master, but for having suffered in prison or worse. And so he ensures that that will not be their fate. There are many things that Jesus has in store for those 11. Arrest that night was not one of them. And so he exercises his power to make sure that they go free. And, and, you know, I I shouldn't be amazed at Jesus' ability to multitask here, but I am. In the midst of the great agony, the the agony of, of the cross praying for his, to his Father that, that your will be done. In all of that, he's constantly working on their behalf, and he's constantly working on our behalf. When I am tempted to not bring something that seems trivial to him, I remind myself he's a really good multitasker. He's, he's, he's in charge of the universe, and yet he can also hear my prayer. He can also answer my prayer. And let me, let me, let me tell you this too. Brothers and sisters, I I think this is a tremendous encouragement. Jesus will not allow you to face anything that might cause you to lose faith. Today, he protects us just as he protects them. Whatever you have endured in this life, it is only because Jesus has allowed you to endure it. Nothing slipped through his watch. If it didn't slip through on the night of the Garden of Gethsemane, how could it possibly slip through when he's seated at the right hand of the Father, King over all things? He is constantly looking out for what's best for us. You guys, who knows what terrors he has kept us from because we could not bear it. How many times has Satan sought to undermine your faith and Jesus has said, no, not today. I'm sure we'll find out. And the glory of Jesus in the garden will be the glory of Jesus in heaven when we hear about all of those times. Number four, the glory of Christ in his miracle, his miracles, verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So there's a lot more of Peter's story to come, and we'll get to that next week and then later on in the book of John. The cross will change everything for Peter. He still doesn't get it. He still thinks he's supposed to fight with the sword, and Jesus is teaching him to fight a different way. But in this burst of zealous impulsiveness, Peter draws his sword and attacks the high priest's servant, some guy named Malchus. And John isn't the only gospel that tells us about this, but he's the only one who gives us the names. We don't know how Peter was with the sword. I doubt that he was going for the ear. He was probably going for the head. And either Malchus was really quick or Peter was a really bad aim, but he gets the ear. And as we'll see next week, Peter's zeal quickly will turn into fear. Peter's a big mess. 
this night. But Jesus will have none of it. Jesus is within hours of defeating Satan and all of his armies, but that will not happen with the sword. It will happen at the cross. And in the meantime, Jesus performs one more miracle, not recorded by John. Luke says that he restores Malchus's ear. He picks it up and puts it back on. A couple of things of note here. What must this multitude of soldiers, a multitude of soldiers, what must they have thought? They're arresting a man who has knocked them down with his words, and now he has put a man's ear back on. At least some of them had to be thinking, what are we doing here? Now, Roman soldiers knew better than to disobey orders, and they almost certainly still feared Rome at this point more than they feared Jesus. But I wonder how many of them went back to the barracks that night describing what they had seen. And it would, it would be no surprise to me at all. As a matter of fact, I think it would be worth anticipating that more than one of those soldiers may be in heaven. We may be able to ask them about that night. I mean, if, if, if you had any sense at all, you'd go find out more about that. The second thing is, when did Judas begin to realize that he had made a big mistake? So we know that Judas will take his own life within a few hours of Jesus' arrest. Judas sees, just like everybody else, that Jesus is in complete control. I do wonder if it was when Jesus spoke those words, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The crushing reality of his sin comes upon him. It's at least possible at the hour, at that hour, Judas's long eternity without Christ began. Remember, and I think this is so important to think about when we think about Judas, Satan lies. He leads you to believe that sin will be great. He makes all kind of promises, and then once you sin, he becomes your accuser. Look at what you, all the promises are gone, and all you're left with is shame and guilt. And I just want to say, if you're here this morning, and you're contemplating sin of any kind, big ones, little ones, life changes, because you think it's great. Please be warned. What seems sweet now will be bitter. Satan can't make you do anything. He can't make you think anything. Don't fall victim to his schemes, because once you act, he then switches, and he becomes your accuser. So we're thinking about the glory of Christ in the garden this morning, his resolve, his words, his protection, and his miracles. I love those words I've mentioned to you before. Paul says to King Agrippa in Acts, he says, these things were not done in a corner. He's talking about the works and the words of Christ. They were all done right out in the open, all the way to the very end. Even a Roman soldier could see and testify that this man did things and said things that nobody else could do. And notice, too, that Jesus is now resolved. He is resolved to drink the cup. His final words to Peter after he heals Malchus's ear, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Remember, just a few minutes before, Jesus was praying, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any way that we can do this different, there was no other way. And so now Jesus is resolved. And he moves forward in the Father's will. This is the Father's will to save a world lost in sin. And this is the Son's mission. We'll be focusing a lot on the cross in the coming weeks, both because we're approaching Easter and because we're finishing the book of John. And we'll be singing songs about the cross, the wonderful cross, at the cross. I will glory in the cross. Man of sorrows, what a name. Hallelujah. What a Savior. 
If you struggle to understand what all the fuss is about, why do we keep singing about a method of execution from 2,000 years ago? Consider Jesus in the garden. No one ever endured such agony as they anticipated their death. His soul was in anger. He cried out to the Father, is there any other way? He sweat drops of blood, all in anticipation of the death that he would endure on our behalf. Why do we sing, oh, the wonderful cross? Because Jesus endured all of that so that we don't have to. That's what we deserve, and he took it. And if you believe, you will be saved. But Jesus is not just our Savior. He is also our example. He is definitely our Savior. He is our Savior first, but He is our example. And we are called to follow Him wherever He leads us. And so we should also have Jesus' perspective as we suffer. It is good and right to cry out to God as we see the weight of suffering crushed down upon us, as we see difficult times on the horizon As things that we've dreaded become a reality, bring your agony to God. Cry out. Let this cup pass from me. Allow your heavenly Father to bring ministers to you, be they human or angelic. But then at some point, we too, like our Savior, must resolve and go forward in God's will. Like our Lord, we should say, shall I not endure what the Father has for me to endure? There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that will come between you and what God intends for you. This is absolutely key to our faith. Nothing has slipped through. Everything you experience is His will for you. And so having brought our agony to God the Father, we can say with Christ, this is what you have for me. And you see this much more in the the prayers and the writings of previous generations, a heart to endure suffering, trusting that this is indeed God's will, and not just to endure, but to move forward with faith and courage. Talk a lot about courage these days. Courage is a biblical virtue. It is a masculine virtue. It is a feminine virtue. If our Lord's will is that we proceed into suffering, we should do so with courage. The opposite of courage is cowardice. Revelation 21.8 says, among other things, that the portion of the cowardly is the lake of fire. So I present you this morning with the resolve of Jesus in the garden. This is one of the rays of glory that shine through on that darkest of all nights. He is our example. Let me read to you again. Hebrews 12.2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we run with endurance as we follow our Lord, who endured the cross for the sake of the glory set before him. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would give us courage. God, I I ask that you would bring to mind this week the glory of the cross. Bring to mind, write it on our hearts, the glory of Christ's suffering in the garden. Father, I ask that you might move us as Christians here to be resolved in your will. Father, that you would help us, like Christ, to trust you and to set our sights on the glory that is before us. Father, I pray for moms and dads and husbands and wives and employers, employees, 
to endure for the sake of your name whatever you have for us faithfully, for students, for teammates. God, all of these things that we are so tempted, when you bring them before us, when you bring these difficult things before us, and we are so tempted to bail, Father, may we find ways to proceed and to let your glory shine through us as we endure with courage and faithfulness. God, I pray that you would put your light on display through the people of Hope Bible Church by our courageous and faithful endurance. Father, do these things. May we have mercy that we might remember these things. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to move to the uh, section of our service where we take the Lord's Supper together today. We do this every week. If you are handing out the bread and the cup, come on up here and get ready to hand those things out. If you're new to us and you are a believer, uh, we would welcome you to participate in this little supper together with us. If you're not a believer, I ask that you would find someone, uh, maybe even just somebody around you, if you've been interested in the things that I've talked about in terms of Jesus and his suffering, his suffering on your behalf, find somebody. Just, this is not going to save you. Jesus saves you. Uh, but this is a wonderful picture that we enjoy together of the sacrifice that Jesus made, sacrificing his, his body, pouring out his blood on our behalf at the cross. So take a minute now as you receive the bread and the cup, uh, pray, uh, consider your own heart, and then in just a minute uh, I'll come back up here and I'll read a passage and we'll partake together.